0: Christian now for about 21 years, and this topic of how to answer the unbeliever is one that uh, both, it's kind of weird because it both gets me super fired up and excited, but it also gets me super nervous and apprehensive. And I think that if you're like me, you come in wanting to be able to uh, defend your position to people who are challenging it, but you just don't know necessarily what to say, where to go, um, or how to do it. And so what that what that does is that disengages a lot of people from even starting the conversation because oftentimes I think, well, what if they ask a question I don't know the answer to? Or what if they challenge me in a way that actually causes my faith to kind of spiral out of control? I don't I don't want that. And we start getting uh, defeated before we even start the topic. So just you showing up today is really encouraging, letting me know that you're like me, that you want to know how to answer the unbeliever, whether it's externally, outside of the church, or even the unbelief that exists within each of us that we're trying to fix based on the revelation of God through His Word. So uh, I'm going to give about 20 minutes, and then um, hopefully we'll have around the last 10 minutes or so to allow you guys to ask whatever question you have on your mind. Um, And so hopefully we'll be able to dialogue through some stuff. So how to answer the unbeliever, this is just an introduction on uh, the topic of Christian apologetics a working definition right now I think is appropriate that apologetics is merely knowing what we believe why we believe it and being able to communicate that to others effectively i would add winsomely with tact and humility i know for some of us in here that may, might be uh high school aged young young men um there's this natural propensity towards Self-confidence, maybe even some arrogance on a bad day. And uh, so therefore, a topic like this, it can be another tool in my arsenal of showing that I'm smarter than the person I'm arguing against. That is not the goal of our time together today. The goal of our time together is not to win an argument. The goal of our time together today is to win a soul. The scripture says that he who wins souls is wise. And so we dialogue with people because eternity is at stake. The the judgment of God, the wrath of God that we are all under already apart from Christ, the way of escape from his wrath through trusting in Jesus, the one who was slain for guilty criminals like me, that's what we're talking about. It's serious and it matters. And so the way that we talk about this topic must be done with tact, with wisdom, with a spirit-empowered leading. And we'll get into that as we dialogue today. So the reason why we dive uh, into this topic is that the Bible commands us to do apologetics. And it tells us how to do it. Isn't that good news? Um, You might be coming in today thinking, well, apologetics, evangelism. I've seen some of those guys like online. Man, those are like the SEAL Team 6 of Christians. They know all the answers. They're never intimidated. They don't look fearful at all. They don't bat an eye. I'm never going to be that. Therefore, I'm out. And if that's you assuming that, then you're like me. Um, And yet, I realized early on that I'm not let off the hook when I read the scriptures. Because God's word calls me to engage others around me with the hope of the gospel. Even if I don't have as much expertise or practice or uh, winsome ability at least at first, to dialogue with people who are opposed to the Christian worldview. But the Bible commands us to do apologetics, and it tells us how to do it. We praise God for that, because the Christian worldview is a biblical worldview. And the command to defend the Bible comes from the Bible itself. Therefore, the Bible commands us to do apologetics, and it tells us how to do it. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, Peter's talking to an oppressed group of early Christians that have been largely rejected by their society in which they live because they were known as atheists in some circles, in Roman circles, in Greco-Roman world. The Christians didn't believe in the pantheon of gods, Zeus and Mithra and all these different gods that were existing in the ancient world in that time. And so they were referred to as atheists because they didn't grab hold of all the gods. And so they were made fun of. They were ostracized. They were uh, spoken down about. Um, They missed out on business opportunities. They were brought to court sometimes. They lost their lives at other times. And so there's a high cost and there's a risk to following Jesus, to opening our mouth about Jesus that Peter speaks into. And Peter says that this is the priority. Make a defense. That's where we get our word apologia. That underlined word there in the Greek is apologia. Apologia is to make a legal case for the trustworthiness, for the validity of the statements that you're making, of the worldview that you're claiming to be true. You're making an apologia. But what, according to this verse, is the priority? Is it to make a defense, or is there something before that command? Do you guys see it? Sanctify Christ. Perfect. Perfect sanctify Christ as Lord. What does that mean? The scriptures tell us that Jesus, the son of God, has come to reveal who the father is, that he has come on a rescue mission, bringing rebellious humanity back into a right relationship with their father in heaven. And the cost was the blood of his own body on that cross. The cost was that he was tortured. He died, he was buried, rose back again on the third day as he promised, evidencing that he's the trustworthy son of God that came to rescue sinful people like us. Because of that, he has sent his disciples, those who are Christians, into the world for a certain task. What's that task? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. What does it say? Spread the word, that's part of it. Make disciples of all nations, which includes spreading the word. We're called to make disciples. What is a disciple? It's one who follows Jesus, one who obeys everything he said and taught. Jesus is Lord now. Matthew 18 says, or Matthew rather, 28 18 through 20, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth will be given to me one day. Is that what it says? No. It says, Something past tense there. All authority has been past tense given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. So because Jesus is Lord, is King of kings, he is King of presidents. He is Lord of all the scientific community and anything that claims to be true and anything that we know from their claims of truth, is actually false. Jesus is above it all. Jesus is the reason why all of those people making audacious claims against God even have the ability to comprehend scientific research and understanding that actually leads them to deny God further. Jesus is king, and that's why we do what we do. We sanctify him as Lord. And because of that, we don't give up our presuppositions. Because Jesus is Lord, that means that I can have firm confidence in his revealed word. So how does that look practically? When I'm having a conversation with somebody and they say to me, well, you're quoting the Bible. I don't believe the Bible, so stop using it. A lot of Christians will at that point say, oh, okay. And they'll put down the Bible. You know what that's like? Imagine two Old school knights coming to fight. Knight number one gets off of his uh, his horse, takes his sword out of its sheath and looks at knight number two, who looks at knight number one and says to knight number one, I don't believe in thine sword. Knight number one with the sword drawn has two options. He can either put his sword back into his sheath with a confused look on his face, start arguing why swords exist, why they're powerful, why they're dangerous, and why you should truly be fearful of the sword. He could do that. Or knight number one could look at knight number two and do what? Use a sword, right? Knight number two is going to realize pretty much instantly that his assumptions were wrong. A lot of times as Christians, we put the Bible down The Bible claims about itself that it is the sword of the spirit in Ephesians 6. That it's our active uh, weapon against the lies and the half-truths that we encounter on a daily basis in this world. The Bible also claims about itself that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to uh, pierce through to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So, Why would I put this incredibly powerful sword away and start arguing with somebody about why they should believe in the God that they already ultimately know exists? What do I mean by that? In Romans 1, it gives us this revelation from God through the Apostle Paul. He tells us through this section of God's Word that, We have universal insight into the condition of mankind, what's really going on behind the scenes, behind the words that we can easily say. When we come across unbelievers, we don't need to sit there for hours to try to convince them that God exists. You should believe in swords. They're dangerous. They're powerful. He's already, God has already made it evident to the professed unbeliever, the professed atheist, the professed agnostic. He's already made it evident to them. Now, we're going to get into that verse in a second, but maybe some of these objections have been some that are um, similar to things that you've experienced. Have you run across any of these? I know I've run across a number of these. I don't believe the Bible. Ah, The Bible is just a fairy tale. God's a fairy tale. I don't believe God. I believe in science. As though that claim is evidence and justifiable evidence in and of itself to maintain their worldview. See, what we as Christians will do is we'll try maybe to – Uh, argue that that, that God exists there if they say, I don't believe in God. Because God has already revealed to us that he is um, the one who has given them enough knowledge that he exists, we can have confidence. So how does this look played out? A couple weeks ago, I'm talking to an atheist at this business, a local business in Fresno. I get the opportunity as kind of a chaplain to go and just interact with people, ask them prayer requests they need, share the gospel with them. It's awesome. And one guy Tells me months ago that he's an atheist. So I follow up uh, a few weeks ago and just say, hey, I know you're an atheist, but um, is there anything I could pray for you about? Anything your family needs? Anything going on? And he says, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't believe there's a God. And I looked at him and said, man, I just don't, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And it's the title of uh, Frank Turek's book, which is a fantastic read. But just saying that was interesting. Because all of a sudden it was kind of like he was caught off guard. He didn't know where to go. What I did was I put the spotlight from being on me to putting the spotlight on him, on his worldview, on the what he assumed was a solid foundation, justifying that there is no God. And so what I said to him was, I don't I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And I looked at him, I said further, I'm like, look, as an atheist Your worldview says that you believe that time and chance acting on matter gives us the ability to have this intelligible conversation right now where you're looking at me in the eyes and I'm looking at you. I don't have enough faith to believe that. That's absurd. And his reaction was, huh. I don't know. I can't interpret for you accurately what the huh was, but I know at least for a second that it caused him to look at his worldview for a second. And maybe reassess. Now, as I talked to him, I got the opportunity to point him to Christ. Because look, the scripture says that our job is not to win an argument. Our job is to win souls. The Proverbs says, he who wins souls is wise. So as I'm looking at this guy, loving this guy, I'm, I'm ultimately, our goal in evangelism, our goal with apologetics is not to convince people that there's a God. Our goal in apologetics and evangelism is to convince them of the God who demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we were still enemies of his, that's when he sent his son to die for us. Amen? That's our job. And if we can point people to the good news of Jesus, we can have confidence in those conversations along the way. I want to show you something real quick that gives us further encouragement. Um, Man, we have so much limited time. We have so much limited time. That sounds like an oxymoron. We have such limited time. Um, there's so much that could be said, but I want to give you some, a couple of tools to use. So when, when you're feeling like you have a lack of confidence in an engaging conversation with people, Romans 1.16 tells us that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul tells us that. So the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel is the power of God to save people. As I share the gospel, there's a work that's going on in people's hearts that I can't see with my five senses I can't perceive but Jesus says further in John 16 8 about the work of the Holy Spirit who we can't see he says in John 3 that the Holy Spirit moves like the wind you can't see the wind but you can see the effects of it and so there's times where I'm having conversation with people and I'm not seeing the work of the Holy Spirit rather I'm not seeing the Holy Spirit but I'm seeing some of the effects of the Holy Spirit so this verse says, he, when he comes, the Holy Spirit comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. A few weeks ago, I'm having a conversation with a guy living in a homeless shelter. He's there with his family at maybe rock bottom of his life. And I'm sharing the truth of Christ with him. And at one point, through a, a dialogue of 45 minutes where we're just going back and forth, he's asking questions, I'm answering them. He does this. Oh! And I'm like, oh, man, either he's going to look up at me and kill me or I don't know what. And he looks up at me with a smile on his face and says, man, it just seems like everything in my life is kind of culminating to this point. It's making sense. And what you're saying, I, I, I believe what you're saying. And I I think I want to get baptized. Like, I want to try that out. I'm like, oh, you don't really try it out. But we'll get to that later. Um But it was so encouraging to have this conversation with a guy that I saw before me, the effects of what the Holy Spirit was doing in his life, convicting him, leading him to the righteousness of Christ and his need for Jesus. That was a beautiful opportunity. It doesn't always happen, and in fact, it rarely happens. But faithful apologetics for the Christian, how to answer the unbeliever, the goal for our time with people is just to plant the seed of God's word, the seed of truth. Or some of us, it's just to water the seed a little bit. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that it's God who causes it to grow. So don't worry about trying to force it to grow. Don't even sit there waiting for it to grow. That'll be a long time for most people. Just be faithful. And so we look at this and see that there's a confidence that we're given. Man, we we don't have much time left. But I want to walk through this section because this is the confidence that we have based on God revealing truth to us apologetics is exposing the suppression of truth we're engaging in worldview conflicts the christian worldview or philosophy of life and the non-christian worldview or unbelieving philosophy of life someone may say i don't believe god exists or the bible's a myth now we'll read this section but i want to say it's typically here where we experience worldview conflict right and we live in a culture that says um you can have conversations, but you must, even in Christian culture, you must obey the eleventh commandment. What's the eleventh commandment? Anyone know what that is? Thou shalt be nice. What's the problem with the eleventh commandment? It's not. It's not a thing. There's no passage in Scripture that tells us that God's priority for us is to be nice. But yet we live in a culture. The moment you start having a conversation that feels a little uncomfortable. And these conversations will feel uncomfortable because we're challenging people's foundational assumptions about life, their justification for why they do what they do. That's uncomfortable. But we've got to move past the discomfort because of love for the person and have the difficult yet necessary, absolutely necessary conversation with them. Now, here's the level of confidence based on Romans 1 that we get to have when the unbeliever claims to not believe God exists. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. See that word there? The issue is not that there's a lack of evidence to believe that God exists. It's an issue of suppressing the truth that we all have that God exists. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. At this point, I like to ask the ardent atheist, who rejects God and the Bible, I like to ask the person, based on this revelation, okay, you say you don't believe that God exists. What additional evidence would God need to give you to convince you that he exists when he's already given you enough that you might know he exists? So what additional evidence do you need to believe God exists when God has already given you enough evidence? internally to know that he exists. If that unbeliever starts answering the question and saying, well, I just think I need this or that, they haven't heard the question. It's kind of a trick question. Because according to this passage, God has already given each of us enough knowledge that he exists through what has been made. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen Being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Does the atheist have an excuse that there's not enough evidence to believe in God? According to God, no. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. When I was talking to the atheist a couple weeks ago, I looked at him at one point and said, Look, our problem is that we don't want God to exist because we want to be God, we want to call the shots. And so the reason why that's the reality is because we love our sin. And I think it was at the second point of the conversation there where he looked at me and said, huh. I'm just telling him the truth, trusting the Holy Spirit to actually convict him and show him that he needs Jesus. Now, at these conversations, we kind of run into uh, a corner here. Because the person might say, I don't believe God exists. Our quandary is do we believe what the unbeliever says about himself, or do we believe what God says about the unbeliever? In this in this scripture that we have, we have many different verses that give us confidence. And Psalm 36 9 says that for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. The atheist the one that claims they're spiritual, not religious, to reject Jesus to justify that kind of spiritual lifestyle. We get to look at them and say, in love, with humility, with gentleness, and respect, Look, you know him. You know the God I'm talking about. And because he has given you light, that's why you're able to see and talk and move and exist and breathe. Your issue is like mine. You just want to be in charge of your life. Right? Am I wrong? Now, I know that that's kind of confrontational, but it's confrontational in love, and uh, it's a good conversation. It's a necessary conversation to have with folks. Now, you might be coming in here today with um, areas of unbelief in your own heart, where you're like, man, I just don't know if I believe this stuff. I don't know if I, man, really? Like, unless I trust Jesus, I'm going to spend eternity in hell. Is that true? Maybe you are coming in with some of these deep questions that you've been intimidated to ask people. And I just want to encourage you with something. I walked through a journey early on in my faith where I found this new joy of relationship with God. I was incredibly overwhelmed that God forgave me for all my sin. And then I was challenged in areas that I didn't have answers. I didn't have answers for them. And I prayed. I remember praying, God, I feel like my, I feel like I'm hanging on I, I just need more faith, and it was this picture in my mind of this thread, and as I asked God for more faith, you know what that f- thread picture did? It snapped. I'm like, what? That makes no sense, and I went on this journey for months actually researching whether or not these things are true and reliable and trustworthy. Are there good reasons for why Christians believe what they believe, and what happened in the end was what this article summarizes. Let me read it to you. Because I know you're coming in here as a high school student with a lot of questions. In Christianity Today, it says this. Over 70% of church-going high schoolers report having serious doubts about faith. Sadly, less than half of those young people shared their doubts and struggles with an adult or friend. Yet, these students' opportunities to express and explore their doubts were actually correlated with greater faith maturity. So people have doubts and questions. All of us do. The ones who actually dove into those questions, expressed their doubts to leaders that they love, looking into the research, actually was correlated with greater faith maturity. I love this last sentence here. In other words, it's not doubt that's toxic to faith. It's silence. I can't tell you how many times um, I've had people ask the questions through tears, the simple questions that have great answers, and they're just scared to ask. And so... At the end of the day, for you who are struggling, who feel like you're distant, feel like you're spiritually starving, like you're distant from God, there's typically a simple reason for it, and we see it in Romans 10.17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing for the by the word of Christ. The question I love to ask people when they're struggling in faith is, man, how much time have you spent in the book? How much time have you spent in this word? Jesus says about it that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Are you in the book? And I know, for me personally, those are the times that I'm struggling to believe what I say I believe. And so, we want to open it up right now to questions that you might have. Any questions? Okay, I'm going to try to answer it. We got about five minutes left. So, if you have a question, uh, we got someone on the uh, mic, and uh, they'll come and uh, get you the question. So. We got one right here. And let's try to limit questions to students instead of leaders, if we can. Um, I remember how you said that, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Yes. Well, actually science can prove that God is real. Did you know that an excavist found, s- reported to have found um, the Book of the Covenant? Well, at the excavation site, he found a black substance. That black substance turned out to be blood. And that blood contained 24 chromosomes. And the w- weird thing was, the blood was still alive. Like a single blood cell was still alive. Not only that, did you know um, it was, I think it was in Jerusalem somewhere, there was a river. Yeah. Do you have a question within it? I mean, th- I, I'm I'm actually intrigued to know what you're talking about because I want to study it. And, and to clarify, um, I'm not saying that science is not real or doesn't exist. Science oh, no, is no. a gift from God. And because of science, we get to study archaeology. We get to study things that you're claiming. So we don't dismiss people who say, I believe in science instead of God. We say, no, no, because God, we have science. Exactly. Right. That's the point. But did you have another question? Uh, no, just... Okay, get me, that, get me that source because I want to read up on that story afterwards. Cool? Okay. okay. And real quick, uh, there's a helpful resource that I, uh, I have a buddy who put this together. It's a lot of the common objections to Christianity the things of God that we encounter when we're out at the, uh, whether it's um, the college campus, they go out to the abortion clinics and try to do some sidewalk counseling to, to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. These are a lot of the common objections against God that people use to justify sin against God. Um, This is a a good resource. It's going to be up on the piano if you want to grab it on your way out. And it's got a lot of links to a lot of other great resources. Uh, Yeah, you want to ask a question? Let me give you the mic right here. Um, One of the arguments you had up there that said, I'm spiritual, not religious. What do you say, like, against that? And what's, like, the difference between those two terms? Yeah, that's a great question because... Um, spirituality is a gift from God, but we got to put the spotlight back on the person that's saying that. What do you mean by spiritual? What do you mean by that? Um, just asking that simple question is a really helpful tactic because that puts them on the defensive. Like, okay, defend your position. You say you're spiritual. I would also say I'm spiritual as a Christian. Do we mean the same thing? Let's hear. What do you have to say? And when typically I encounter this conversation, it's related to a lot of new age spirituality. Our culture is saturated with it. Using mind-altering substances. Let me throw this out. Anyone ever heard of DMT, ayahuasca, um, transcendental meditation, uh, kundalini yoga? Things that are very Eastern and mystical are... What we're talking about a lot of times in our culture with people that say, I'm spiritual, not really religious. Uh, That's good that you're a Christian, but I connect to God through spiritual experiences, and I've had undeniable spiritual experiences. If somebody says that to me, I don't deny that they've had spiritual experiences. I just tell them, oh, man, God has warned us to not dabble in that stuff because you're dabbling with spirits that um, many, many, many of them are liars, and they're actually not trustworthy. And the problem is that you don't know who's who when you're diving into the spiritual realm. This is a whole other seminar in and of itself. Um, The effects of mind-altering substances and everything God warns us against. Again, we go back to the revelation of God. He's told us to not even dabble in it so that we don't unlock these mystical spiritual experiences that, again, I believe are real. that are deceptive. They'll lead us down a path we ultimately don't want to go. A path that leads to destruction. So I'll have those types of conversations if that's helpful. We can talk more afterwards if you want. Good question. Anything else? Any other questions? We got one minute left. So, if you're friends with an unbeliever, how do you spark up a conversation about religion? Yeah. Um, I would say there's a thousand, I would say there's thousands of ways that you could strike, a, strike up a conversation with them about God, about the things of God. Some of the ones that I go to often are hey, what are your thoughts on Jesus? Just go straight for it, right? Why, why beat around it? Like, what do you think about God? What do you think happens when we die? Let them talk. Let them give you their perspective on life. Another question that I love to ask is, and this comes from Evangelism Explosion, a, a helpful resource from decades ago. I look at people and I'll say, look, if you were to die today and stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? Asking them that question will reveal before long what their hope is in. Typically, most people will say, well, I mean, I've lived a pretty good life. It's based on how they've lived. If that's the case, then you know that they need Jesus. Because the Bible clearly lays out that there's no one good, not one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can further take them through the law of God, the Ten Commandments, that is our schoolmaster that points us to Jesus, our need for Jesus. That's a further discussion. I would encourage you to pick up this magazine for further equipping of how to do that. Good question. Thanks, you guys, so much for coming in today. Appreciate you all.